So welcome everybody. So today's actually going to be part one of a two-part people's school classes on Korea and Korean War. But uh, the later one will be happening later in the year or maybe even next year. But once we upload it, you know, onto social media and YouTube, it'll be like part one, part two. But today the class is actually called the Great Patriotic War and the Great Fatherland Liberation War. And the theme of tonight's class is how the anti-fascist war which was the war against fascism, which the Soviet Union fought, led to the creation of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. So today's class is pretty much a pre-Korean War uh, history, specifically focusing on the Soviet Union from around 1905-ish up until about 1949. And so the actual Korean War class and that aspect will be done at a later time. Towards the end of the class, we'll actually be watching the video. So in this picture here, we have Kim Il-sung. This is from 1961. Who the Soviet representative is, I actually don't remember. But Kim Il-sung went to the Soviet Union something like 10 or 11 times in his whole life. And he went a lot of the times, obviously, when, well, actually, he went back when there was the Comintern in the 30s. He was the representative to the Comintern. And then he also trained as a soldier in the Soviet Union for his national liberation struggle. But he continued going to the Soviet Union. Even when there was Khrushchev, he was going to the Soviet Union. Uh, it was not until later, really, the Gorbachev period, that he was no longer visiting the Soviet Union. And so today's class, the Great Patriotic War and the Great Fatherland Liberation War. So the Great Patriotic War is what Soviet citizens, which includes more than just Russia, all the, the former Soviet republics call World War II the Great Patriotic War. And the Great Fatherland Liberation War is what Koreans call the Korean War, which would, in a way, be kind of the Korean-American War. And we say that because... Right before the Korean-American War, the Koreans, along with the Soviets, actually fought against the Japanese. So Korea actually fought two national liberations. And so today's class is what it says right here, how the anti-fascist war from 1941 to 1945 helped create the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. To begin, Korea under Japanese colonialism. So here's a picture of the Soviet Far East in the 1930s. So when we look at a map today, and maps in general, we sort of, I think Americans think of maps as static. But if you were to go back even within some comrades' lifetimes to the 1930s, this whole region of the world would be very different. Number one, there was a Soviet Union. And number two, as you see there, Japan is actually much larger. And there was no actual China at that time. China was kind of broken up uh, in the early 1900s. You had the Boxer Rebellion, where all the European powers, kind of like how they carved up the Middle East. This would be Germany, Italy, France, United Kingdom, and America. The same thing happened in China. And so China was many different little countries. And the part which you see in this map, which is green, is actually Japan. So as you see, some parts that are now Russia today are actually Japan. And then the whole Korean Peninsula is actually Japan. And then above Korea, which is a part of what is now China, there's something called Manchukuo. So basically, that is the Manchukuo puppet state. During this time, all of China was at war. There was something called the warlord era in the 1920s. So there are different regional areas, you know, some allied with different groups. You had the KMT, the Kuomintang, which was actually working with the Soviet Union. And it included the Communist Party of China at the time. They were working with the KMT. Chiang Kai-shek was the leader of the Kuomintang. And he later went to work for the United States, basically. And as we know, he lost the side of uh, the Chinese Civil War and he fled to Taiwan. 
Okay, so next slide, please. So in particular, Soviet-Japanese relations. To give some context of what was going on in this region of the world, we should remember, comrades, that Japan defeated Russia in the 1905 war. And to talk about Lenin and Stalin, uh, in 1905, the Russian, there was a revolution in Russia. And in part, that revolution happened because of the defeat afflicted upon Russia by Japan. And at this time, Japan, actually historically, Japanese empire was allied with the allied powers in World War I. That would be Britain, France, Italy, and the United States. And Japan actually took part in the invasions against the early Soviet Republic. So Japan was active in the Far East. But what happened was that Soviet forces reestablished control uh, amongst the former Russian areas. But in 1938, there's a high-ranking NKVD, which would be the intelligence service. It would be like FBI or CIA in our country. Uh, one of the top people defected to Japan. His name was Genrik Lushkov, and he gave the Empire of Japan Soviet and uh, military and state secrets to give all of our participants a, a context of what was going on around the world at this time. This was around the same time that Nazis took control of Germany. And we should remember that the... The Nazi military, which was the former German Weimar Republic military, it was called the Reichswehr. It started with the R, Reichswehr, because the Soviet Union was working with the Weimar government in secret. This backfired, of course, as we know. It was the Nazis who actually were able to infiltrate the Soviet Union officer corps and things of that nature, of which we could do book recommendations to New Outlook, New Outlook publishers like the Moscow Trials. All of those things, what's called propaganda in the United States was in fact quite real in the Soviet Union in the 30s. So this is the context, the background of what was going on at the time is that you had this back and forth uh, intelligence operation with Nazi Germany, but at the same time you had high-ranking Soviet intelligence officers defecting to Japan. And right there in Manchukau, if you remember the map earlier, the Japanese, they created the Million Strong Kwantung Army. It was their best army. So Japan went south. They went all the way to Indonesia. You know, they took the Philippines from the United States. They took Indochina. I think everybody knows the, the movie The Bridge Over River Kwai. is a famous movie. But the best army of Japan was actually stationed in China, specifically on the border of the Soviet Union. And then, as you know, everyone here in the later going, if you go further in time or closer to us, I guess, Japan actually joined with Nazi Germany. Uh, they've signed a pact, and that's why they were called the Axis. And Nazi Germany, at the same point in time, kept expanding east towards the Soviet Union with something which was called appeasement by Britain, the United States, and even Poland, by the way. Poland signed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany. Britain did. France did. Everybody did, except the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union was trying to get a treaty signed with France and Britain, which they would not do, which is what led Stalin to sign the Ritschow Pact. So now let's go specifically to Korea. Let's remember that there was no Korea at this time. Uh, we're going back to the Korean Peninsula. So while the Third Reich was building up its strength in the West to fight for more living space for the German people, Japan was already in fully engaged in creating a greater East Asia under its own domination. In 1931, and we'll get we'll get to this later, by the way, about how Mount Chukau came to be. It has something to do with communists. It's not actually a good story. Uh, so we'll get to that later, though. In 1931, the Japanese invaded China's Manchuria province, and they set up 
the state of Manchukuo. So Korea at this time was actually uh, an official Japanese colony, much like Philippines would be or Cuba for the United States. Well, that's what Korea was to Japan in 1910 with the Korea-Japan Treaty. And Korea was called Chosen or Chosen. And it, it was called that until 1945, not until Japan was actually defeated. And the picture here shows the Imperial Japanese Army marching into Nanking in December 13, 1937. And then here's an actual map, so you can see Japanese expansion, early 30s. So the Soviet Union watched Japanese expansion with alarm, rightly believing that sooner or later it would spread to its own far east. And we put this in here because it should be stated that the Japanese-occupied Korea was very notorious for comfort women who served in military brothels. These were young girls and women, and they maintained bonds after the war, and they actually became quite famous, so it's something people know about. And then the Korean Communist Party, KCP, was set up in 1925, and it was a member of the Comintern, Communist International. And so now we're going to read something from Kim Il-sung, because the communist movement in Korea in the 20s and early 30s is very akin to what we see around the world today with different groups and factions. And so this is some from a document called Problems of the Korean National Liberation Movement and Within the Communist Party of Korea. Excerpts from Path of the Korean Revolution by Kim Il-sung from 1930. So on May 30, 1930, opportunistic ultra-left factions calling themselves the Communist Party of Korea organized a revolt in Manchuria, trying to gain international attention to themselves, especially from the Comintern. So basically you had people who weren't really based in the community doing fireworks to get the attention of the Soviet Union to support them instead of other groups. Does that sound familiar to things going on today? And then instead, Japan used this event to send in armed forces. And there was a second incident, I think called the Mukden incident in 1931, which is basically a false flag by Japan. And that's how they set up Manchukuo. But Kim Il-sung said, let us see how the factionalists acted in connection to the problem of party building in our country. And then he listed some of the names of the groups. One was called the ML group. One was called the Tuesday group the North Wind Association group and other factions, each consisting, insisting that it was the only quote-unquote orthodox and genuine quote-unquote Marxist group approached the common turn for approval instead of building up the party. Thus, the KCP failed to strike its roots among the masses deeply enough to overcome Japanese imperialist oppression and in the long run was expelled from the common turn. So the, the KCP, the Communist Party of Korea, was actually expelled. It was kicked out of the common turn because of its factional its, its struggles. And then at the same time, going back to the Soviet Union, this is a picture, the Battle of Lake Kasan. So this is reenactors, the 75th anniversary from August 2013. So I guess they'll be going on like their 80-something anniversary now. But this was a battle between the Soviet Union and China in a region of the world that most people don't know about. It was just mountains in the center of Asia. So basically what happened in the Great Patriotic War is that the Soviet Union won, but the Soviet Union was focusing on Germany and kind of had, I guess we would have someone who can raise their hand on this if there's some kind of truce something with Japan, because they both kind of let each other be for a little bit. But the Soviet Union did really a spectacular military operation that no one talks about because it doesn't benefit anybody in our country to speak about this, but that the Soviet Union just defeated Japan. And this is one of the cap catalysts of the United States using, well, justifying the use of the atomic bomb. So these are pictures of the three Soviet groupings that took Manchuria. 
and the Red Army support for Korean liberation. So we had the senior command quarters headed by Marshal of the Soviet Union, Alexander Vasilevsky. He participated in Stalingrad, Kursk, and the Belarusian operations before taking command of the third Belarusian front in East Prussia, which is now Kaliningrad, in 1945. And that same year, he was designated to command the Soviet forces in the Far East. Commanding the Transbaikal Front was Marshal of the Soviet Union, Radion Malinovsky, who had previously commanded a front in the battles of Odessa, Budapest, and Vienna. And Malinovsky's compatriot was 48-year-old Marshal of the Soviet Union, Kuril Meritskov, who actually have one of his books, biography, and his first Far Eastern Army with the 5th Guards Army, the 1st Red Banner Army, the 25th and 35th Armies, the 10th Mechanized Corps, and the Chuguvetsk Operational Group, supported by the 9th Air Army. And then this is a picture of Soviet troops actually moving across Manchuria. So you have the T-35s and Soviet trucks and armor vehicles. And then here's some of the Japanese Kwantung Army surrendering. Obviously, they, they did put up a battle, but they were basically encircled and uh, they lost. And I think this is a good time to pause now and open. All right. So we'll go to our first round of questions and comments. Yeah, so just some elaboration on some of the intelligence stuff um, that Comrade is mentioning. So there is evidence, and you can read Grover Fur's books as well as other scholars on this, that um, the Japanese and Germans had infiltrated sections of the Soviet NKVD and the Red Army. Um, and this is pretty much what the quote-unquote great purges of 1937-38 were about, what the Moscow trials were about. Um, there were factions within the party that were dissatisfied with Stalin around figures such as Zinoviev and Bukharin and uh, Yezhov and a lot of other people. Um, and what happened in every country um, as the Germans toured through Western Europe, um, you, had five, you had a fifth column in every country um, in Belgium. You had a fifth column that supported the Nazis when the Germans came in and helped, you know, collapse the Belgian government. In Luxembourg, you had a fifth column. In France, you had a huge fifth column. You had a prime minister that was a fifth column. Um, this bastard named Pierre Laval, I think that was his name, and where he surrendered his entire country to the Germans. The French could have kept on fighting, but thanks to you know the Third Republic having a anti-popular government, they got rid of the Popular Front. They elected Deladier and Laval. And the government collapsed because there was a fifth column. In the Soviet Union, this didn't happen because the Soviets managed to clean out their intelligence agencies and their armies um, before the Germans invaded in 41. Um, in the case of uh, Japan and the Soviet Union, yeah, during World War, they, they fought border conflicts in 1938-39, um, but then they signed a non-aggression treaty um, because the Soviets realized that the Germans were the primary threat. Um, funny enough, you can actually find um, video of a Japanese uh, dignitary at the Victory Day Parade in 1945 in Moscow, which is really funny and fascinating, considering only months later, the Soviets would help, would declare war on Japan and liberate Manchuria. All right. Thank you, comrade. Hello, comrade. So, uh, yeah, I want to add on to what um, <clears throat> was just talking about. Okay, so um, you mentioned earlier the, um, the armed conflict between the Soviet Union and Japan in the late 30s. So you mentioned the uh, Lake Kassan, 38, summer 38. And then a year later, it was uh, another conflict at the Kalkin Gulf, it's called. 
And that was in the summer of 1939. And uh, that's when Zhukov, for the first time, showed his, uh, his talents, you know, as a commander. He won the battle. But what's really important is to know that it was the same time that Molotov, under Stalin's order, of course, signed the pact with Ribbentrop, you know, the German-Soviet pact of non-aggression, because it was important uh, to make sure that uh, Germany, uh, the Nazi Germany, would not attack the Soviet Union while Japan was attacking at the very time. Okay? So to be not caught in between two sides, you know. 90 seconds. West and East, you know. So that's why um, that was one good reason to sign the non-aggression pact with Germany to save time for, for the upcoming conflict and not have Japan and Germany at the same time hit you on both sides, okay? And by the way, in early 41, then... USSR signed a non-aggression treaty with Japan. Okay, it's right before Two minutes. Barbarossa, before the attack of Germany, and also this time they knew Germany was going to attack, so they wanted to make sure Japan wouldn't attack as well. So you know, it's like a, a diplomatic thing. It was genius from Stalin to do those two pacts. You know, that's all. Thank you. Yeah, curious, random, general question. Why did the Soviets allow the partition of Korea in general, since they were closer and they did defeat the Japanese? Why didn't they tell America to go take a hike? Why did they allow the splitting of, of Korea? Sorry if that's too general. Okay, no, that's a good question. And actually, I think as we get into the class later, we'll get into it because in the North and the South, and we're going to get into this. There was actually kind of like in the Soviet Union, while there was two governments in 1917, you had like the, uh, the Revolution and um, Kerensky and all, you know, the bourgeois. And then at the same time, you had Soviets. Well, in the military operation or occupation zones, you had the United States military government. Then you had the Soviet Union. Uh, but within Korea, there was something called popular committees. And it, it sounds communist, funny, but they weren't necessarily communists, but they were in the South. And we're, we're going to get to that later. I think um, perhaps there was an underestimation of what the United States was going to do, this, because we're going to get into the repression that began immediately in South Korea under the United States. Uh, we'll get into that later. But uh, to answer your question, I would put it down to miscalculation. You win some, you lose some. I think they, they just it didn't work out for the Soviet Union. Yeah, um, it's also keep in mind, um, you know, we were still allies at the time when World War II was wrapping up the Soviet Union, USA, Britain, this was the United Nations, this was the alliance, um, a lot of Soviet um, foreign policy was based upon the underlying assumption within these couple of years, um, that this alliance would continue into the future. Um, this explains a lot of Soviet actions, such as allowing the division of Berlin, um, you know, kind of not interfering as much within Greece um, and also Korea in particular. Um, the Soviets, the, the Soviets were very moderate in terms of their foreign policy in this period. It isn't until, um, it isn't really until like the crushing of the Greek Communist Party in the Civil War and uh, the division in Korea that you really see kind of the beginning of like the serious escalation of the Cold War. Thank you, I want to add that um, that the partition of Korea 
was decided together by the US and the USSR, and uh, either Yalta, which is early 45, or Potsdam, which is after Germany's defeat. I don't remember which one, but they had already decided that the US would get south of the 38th parallel, and the USSR would get north of the 38th parallel. That was decided at those agreements, you know, when uh, USSR and the US were allies. All right, thank you. And uh, I, I have my hand raised, and now I'll say what I was going to say. Actually, what you mentioned was, was yeah, you're, you're right, that that was actually the, the debut, if you will, of Marshall Zukov, who, I don't know if you've seen his famous picture, you know, he's the bald Soviet general, but he's the one who played a role in the victory of the Soviet Union World War II. It was his debut uh, fighting against Japan at that time. And actually at the same, I think it was at Lake Kassan, he was at both of them, actually another guy who's my personal hero, his name is David Durgunsky. He was a Soviet general and he was Jewish and he led the Soviet anti-Zionist committee in the 1980s. And Angelo D'Angelo met him in person because he came to speak in an event in New York, uh, but he was actually a Soviet um, general as well. And he was a tank commander. And at Lake Kassan, he did the first Soviet tank uh, amphibious like tank crossing where they they and at the time you know it was uh it, it was a new thing you know today we take these kind of things for for granted but uh in the future we're going to publish his biography and they had to like you know grease up the the tank um ventilations and stuff and they actually did an amphibious crossing which i'm sure was not the first one in the world but it was definitely the first soviet one in battle conditions uh, but anyways, we can now return. Okay, so now we're going to go to the DPRK. And the reason we break it up like this is we're kind of telling you a Soviet side of things, and we're going to get back to the Soviet side of things a lot. But the DPRK has its own telling of events. And the telling of events or the study of history is called historiography. And basically, what does that mean? Well, think of it this way. Go to different countries and look at the way that they tell a story about something like the same event will be told differently. For example, in Russia, World War II is a great patriotic war. In America, it's World War II. Thank you. Uh, yeah, historiography refers to like the collective body of literature that's been written about a subject, um, you know, kind of with a particular eye to the controversies or debates. Um, so if we were to talk about, you know, the historiography um, of the Soviet Union in the 1930s, we would have a historiography that was very polarized, obviously, between some, you know, deeply reactionary anti-Soviet people um, and some people who are a little bit more honest um, and truthful. Although that's a particularly polarized subject, you know, pretty much any topic in history is going to have a literature that contains a range of views um, and disagreement. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and by the way, a lot of today's class is the Soviet side, and later we're going to get to some Korean presentation of their own history, so we get to see two kind of different views on the same thing, one Soviet and one uh, Korean. That answered my question. Thanks. Yeah. So now we're going to hear what the DPRK says on their side of things. All right. of the DPRK. Uh, these are excerpts from The Monstrous War by uh, W.G. Burchett. And that's a book that we'll get more into in the second part of the class. The next most memorable year for Kim Il-sung was 1931. 
It was the year of Japan's invasion of Manchuria, and it was the year that he was accepted into the Chinese Communist Party. It was the year that Kim, at 19, organized the first communist-led Korean guerrillas in the forests and mountains at Tiantao. It was the year in which the banner of armed resistance to the Japanese was raised. With its steep high mountains and dense forests, and its proximity to three countries, Tiantao was excellently placed as a guerrilla base, and it served as such from 1931 onwards until the day Soviet troops, with partisan help, smashed the Japanese on the Tuban and Yalu rivers and broke through the, to liberate Korea. The exiled Korean peasants were first-class political material on which to base a revolutionary and armed resistance. Shortly after the Japanese invasion of 1931, a band of a dozen grim-faced youths met in a wood in the Tiantao Mountains and pledged themselves to fight to the death for the liberation of their country. From this small guerrilla band, whole divisions later sprang up, pinning down vastly superior Japanese forces throughout the entire war against China and later during World War II. Following the invasion, the peasants in the Tiantao area had spontaneously staged large-scale autumn harvest riots. When they knew armed resistance had started, they flocked to the banner of Kim Il-sung in tens and scores of thousands. The units formed in the Tiantao area soon had close contact with other units fighting in North Manchuria. Chinese and Korean patriot fighters fought side by side as brothers, sometimes Chinese under Korean leaders, sometimes Koreans under Chinese leaders. Wherever they operated, Korean and Chinese peasants supported them, fed them, hid them, acted as the eyes and ears of intelligence. Koreans and Chinese in Manchuria lived and worked and fought as one family against the common enemy. Under the leadership of the Korean and Chinese Communist Parties, the political and military anti-Japanese United Front became a living reality. By 1935, the guerrilla movement was operating over large areas of Manchuria, and the various units were knit together in the Manchurian Anti-Japanese United Forces, with long-range bases established in the Changpai Mountain Range, which runs along the Korean-Manchurian border and along the Singari River. Frequent guerrilla annihilation campaigns were launched by the Japanese. Many lives were lost, but each campaign, with its brutal reprisals against peasants, or suspected guerrilla sympathies added more recruits to the fighting units. General Kim's forces were able to push their raids deeper and deeper into Korea proper, fanning the flame of resistance inside the country, inspiring local patriots to take action and keeping Japanese forces busy chasing hide-and-seek through the myriad mountain ranges of North Korea. When the Japanese launched their attempted invasion of the Soviet Union at Chang Ku Feng in 1938, General Kim's units launched a highly successful surprise attack in the Japanese rear and drew off important detachments from the main action. Battle of Ponchobo, June 4, 1937. The time around the Ponchobo battle was rigorous under the barbaric colonial rule of the Japanese imperialists. In the middle of the 1930s, the Japanese imperialists penetrated unheard of fascist tyranny against the Korean people. One of the intensive expressions was their wicked moves to remove the spoken and written Korean language. Feeling more painful at the misfortunes of the Korean nation than anybody else, the great Kim Il-sung decided to strike in Panchobo, the northern border area of Korea. Leading the main unit of the Korean People's Revolutionary Army, 
Kimil-sung crossed the river Amnok and arrived at the Kanjang Hill in the homeland at night on June 3rd, Juche 26 or 1937. At 10 p.m. on June 4th, he fired his gun into the quiet night sky of Panchobo in the homeland. Due to a powerful attack of the Korean People's Revolutionary Army, the police substation was destroyed and a number of the enemy's ruling organs, such as sub-county office, post office, forester's office, and fire department hall, were wrapped in flames. The enemy was defeated without proper resistance and flames flared up in the whole city of Panchobo, pushing away the darkness. Later in his reminiscences with the century, Kim Il-sung wrote, The Battle of Panchobo showed that imperialist Japan could be smashed and burnt up like rubbish. The flames over the night sky of Panchobo and the fatherland heralded the dawn of the liberation of Korea, which had been buried in darkness. The Panchobo battle was a historic battle which not only showed to the Korean people uh, who thought Korea to be dead, that Korea is not dead but alive, but also gave them the confidence that when they fight, they can achieve national independence and liberation. Yeah, thank you. So we'll go to the hands. I kind of have a question. One of the comrades earlier mentioned this idea of a column. And for some reason, the um, I don't have a good uh, picture in my mind of what that is. It kind of eludes me. So maybe we could bring that back up later. Okay. Yeah. And I saw some hands went up. Thank you, by the way, all three for your contributions. He was speaking of fifth columns, which were basically uh, groups or people who infiltrated into the communist governments to uh, disrupt and to break unity. They basically, okay. uh, yeah, they they basically facilitated the rise of fascist movements. I see. Yes, yeah, thank okay. you. And to be specific on that, I'll speak now. It actually comes from a quote from the Spanish Civil War. So very interesting. The talking about right now. 1938, 39, 37. Uh, we're talking about the Soviet Union battling with Japan in the mountains of Central Asia. But at the same time, the Spanish Civil War was going on, actually. And so you had the Soviet Union and all the communists, including our country, you had the Lincoln Brigade and the, the Washington Brigade, and many communists were there fighting in Spain. And Spain government was actually a popular front government, and it was supported by the communists and socialists. And it was the military that rebelled with the help of Germany. And they were also working, by the way, Franco worked with Britain, for example. But one of the Spanish generals on Franco's side, when they were going towards Madrid, the capital, he said, and this is where the quote comes from, he said, I have my four columns coming. I have one coming from the north, one from the east, one from the west, and one from the south. But my most powerful army is my fifth column, and it is already inside the city. And so that's where the quote comes from, and it's been used a lot since. Yeah, I just wanted to stay for one of the slides, we um, it was cited, The Monstrous War by Wilfred Burchett. The book is uh, republished under uh, New Atlas Publishers. If uh, you'd like a copy, you could follow the link that I uh, sent in the chat. It's a, it's a great book, and it really goes into detail um, how the Korean War started and the, the lead-up. Yeah, thank you. And so, yeah, we'll make sure to link that in our presentation and everything. And, uh, yeah, we sell the book on New Outlook Publishers. So, thank you. Yeah, I was just going to add, in it, they um, said the United Front against Japan. And... Uh, 
you know, I, I think it would probably be more accurate to say that it was uh, um, a popular front because if you um, read further into this book, you'll see that um, the um, the DPRK actually gave um, leniency to uh, some of the landlords and petty capitalists that were uh, that didn't side with their class interests that actually fought against um, the Japanese imperialism. Uh, whereas you had a lot of compradors and uh, and landlords that actually uh, sided with the Japanese down in the south. A lot of the ones up in the north were um, anti-Japanese imperialism. And for that reason, they were rewarded with a little bit leniency comparatively. That's all. We talked about the Japanese prohibiting the language, but they also made the Koreans wear like certain types of clothing. Like they couldn't wear anything that was like colorful. They had to wear like um, really basic clothing. That's also in the book, uh, This Monstrous War. Thank you. Yeah, I briefly heard some of what was being said. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but kind of like how in, when the Soviet Union was formed, well, the Soviet Republic anyway, in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution in October. Before that, there was the February Revolution, the Bourgeois Revolution. So you actually had this bourgeois government, and then you had the Soviets. You had the Soviets operating at the same time. And we're going to get into this later in today's class, but there was actually two governments going on. This is, you know, after 45, uh, we're talking about not during the national liberation struggle, but in the North and South occupation zones, there were the, I think it's called popular committees or people's committees. It sounds like a really communist name, but they weren't communists. There were communists participating. As mentioned, it was like a united front kind of thing. But really, it was more of a nationalist movement. You had all sorts of groups, like religious groups, you know, conservative groups. One minute. Uh, thank you. And we'll, we'll get into this later. Unfortunately, I didn't get one of the names. But when we talk about Syngman Rhee and how he just massacred everybody in the South, of all, the whole spectrum, not even communists, he just killed everybody. There was actually this other famous Korean like national liberator guy, and I, I should have got his name. But he was not a communist, but he's very famous. And he lived in the South. And he was actually killed by Syngman Rhee. And it, basically, there could have been like an alternate kind of national liberation, but um, I guess the United States chose another source. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my question might have been answered if I paid better attention, but why did he just fire the pistol into the air? Was that like a rallying or like a battle cry? Uh, as you saw before that, we already knew Kim Il-sung was trained by the Soviet Union. He was a member of the Chinese Communist Party. And he was armed by the Soviet Union. Uh, but basically, we mentioned previously, there was a lot of internal problems going on. But then Japan invaded and they, they made their puppet state. And the Battle of Pachumbo, from what I understand, having studied it, it was really not much of a battle. It's just kind of this little rural town. And Kim Il-sung, you know, I mean, I, no disrespect to any Korean if they hear this, but he like gathered the boys and they just kind of went One to minute. town and like kind of shot some stuff. And they like burned you know, the police station, and then they just ran away. And obviously the way I'm saying it was really disrespectful, but there really wasn't much that they did. But what they did do was they stood up because before then nobody was fighting the Japanese. And so definitely at that point in his, well, at that point in all history, uh, you can always go to that point, to that battle of Pachambo that Kim Il-sung and some Korean guerrillas, they actually did fight the Japanese and they actually did battle them. So that's what the Battle of Pachumbo was. Thank you. 
Yeah, I just wanted to talk about um, like the Korean diaspora at this time. Um, you know, there was a lot of Koreans who lived in what is now China, but as well, there was a lot that lived in the Soviet Union. And like the one, like uh, Kim Il-sung is part of the group that lived in the Soviet Union. He spoke Russian. You know, I read, I forgot where, what book it was, but I had read that he didn't even know Korean really that much, but like right before the war ended, like he learned Korean in Russia or in the Soviet Union. And then he went back and, you know, like the first recorded speech of his, like, not that he's stumbling over his words, but you can tell that like, you know, his pronunciation and mastery of the language is not so high. And, you know, I bring this up because it's interesting, like, you know, the Soviet Union was committed to helping these people in their struggles. And like now we have to judge Korea, North Korea, with their relationship to like the communist struggle internationally. Like now they're pushing ideas like multipolarity. They support support Russia and the special military operation against Ukraine. And like it's just so vilified here. It's, It's really good to have this class to kind of get some of that baggage away for newer people. Thank you. Uh, what I wanted to say was, I know there was a period during the war where there was a paranoia, uh, Japanese spies, uh, which led to a, uh, uh, which led to, which led to a rift between the Chinese and some of the Korean groups. I have not been able to read much uh, about, uh, uh, read much about it, uh, so. Uh, how did how did that impact the relationship going into uh, 1948? Uh, it's interesting you say that because we touched on that at the last class. I remember it's going to be in the video that we watched at the end. It's just there's a certain part where they go into how the American forces that came in to occupy Korea were really brutal to the Koreans. And I think it might have to do something you're saying. They, they basically treated Koreans as the enemy, even though they came there to supposedly like rule them. I guess that would be, judging from last week's class, what I learned and what I kind of knew beforehand, I don't think there were as many Koreans in our country as there were Japanese, because Japan had much more. I think if Comrade was here, he could speak. He's doing a project on a colony in in Florida. But, you know, there were Japanese, like in in Hawaii, for example, there were workers that were all over California. Uh, There were much less Koreans, perhaps because Japan was actually colonizing Korea at that time. But definitely from what I learned last class, Americans simply treated Koreans as the enemy, even though they weren't even Japanese. Go ahead. Yeah, um, just something related to that is that if I remember correctly, actually, one of the reasons why North Korea has historically been so impoverished is because during the Korean War, there was like just absolute destruction. Like, if I remember correctly, in some of the cities, no buildings taller than like two stories high would be standing. If I remember correctly, the statistic, the statistic is around like 75% of all railways civilian infrastructure was destroyed during the Korean War. Like there was just like there was just absolute destruction bombing of civilian targets. And so I just feel like that's important to note that like they really did treat the Koreans like they were the enemy, even though they were there to, you know, quote unquote liberate them. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And when we get to the video later, they're gonna talk about that. The video we watch, by the way, is not produced by us. But the video has its own perspective. The video basically tries to portray the Korean War is the creation of the military-industrial complex, what we call today. And it talks about that. It, the video is going to touch on that, how they just completely destroyed Korea. Uh, and they let it happen. That's what the video implies anyway. It was on purpose. 
Yeah, so if we're talking about the brutality of the U.S. during the Korean War, they killed 20% of the Korean population. That's equivalent to one out of every five people. So imagine five people who you know, and one of them dies for every five people you know. Thank you. Uh, so I think we can resume now. We're going to kind of hop around between Soviet and Korean perspectives, I think. So we just talked about Manchuria, and that was the Soviet Union. It was called something like the Manchurian Strategic Operation, something like that. And as we just mentioned, all this stuff is going on around the world uh, at that time. And so at the same time, the Soviet Union defeated Japan in China, and they did all of this in about a month or two. So imagine all that European fighting that went on for four years, and then the Soviet Union went east and they took China in a month. Uh, so I think they learned a lot fighting Germany. But at the same time that this happened, that the Soviet forces were taking Manchuria, the United States went and bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we bring this up because I could be wrong on this. We'll have other comrades speak, but I think it's pretty much acknowledged by uh, all spectrum of political forces that the United States dropped these bombs as a showing of force to the Soviet Union and that Japan was already losing. And that's what the Soviet Union did is they pretty much showed the world that Japan was done. But the United States dropped these bombs anyways. And furthermore, we've done a lot on the Rosenbergs. The United States then went on to say that Soviet nuclear technology was because of spies and killed the Rosenberg family, Julius and Ethel, who we've done a lot of work on this class. And it was basically shown that uh, what Julius did, did share was radio information, not even nuclear but it was all public knowledge anyway. And at the same time, the Soviet Union and the United States were allied together. And the charges against Ethel were basically made up by her own brother, nonetheless, who did this to save his skin and just be a, a horrible human. And I, I recommend everybody look up uh, 60 Minutes, did an interview with her brother, David Greenglass, like in 2003 or something, he was still alive. And uh, obviously the news report is very one-sided against the Rosenbergs. But interestingly enough, that interview that they did with this man really exposed him to be what I would say a rat. So the whole thing with this nuclear strikes, it could have been averted, but it was done anyway. So just so all the comrades understand, at the same time, Soviet Union was taking Manchuria. The United States was dropping nuclear bombs on Japan. And so the end to Japanese occupation. So the Soviet Manchurian campaign destroyed the last vestige of Japanese military power. As we all know, uh, so was this, the saying of Japan, they're samurai, Bushido, they fight till the end. You know, they go do kamikaze, even when they're losing, they go, they'll, they'll sacrifice themselves uh, till the last man. But the Soviet Union brushed that, that idea away and said, no, it's all over. And so the Soviets launched, okay, so they took Japan. And then remember, because today's class is on, or it's not, they took uh, China. Today's class is on Korea. So the Soviet Union took China first because China is above Korea, obviously. And then it was August 14th, the Soviet Union reached Korea. And then the Red Army stopped national liberation and the founding of the DPRK, which is today's class theme, actually. So the situation in our country underwent a radical change after liberation. When the anti-fascist world war was brought to a victorious conclusion, thanks to the decisive role played by the Soviet army, the system of barbarous Japanese imperialist rule collapsed in Korea, too. And the way was open for building a Korea for the Koreans, for building a new country and a new life in the conformity to our people's will and demands. 
And this is from a speech, a part of an excerpt that is from Kim Il-sung, August 26, 1946, uh, called for the establishment of a united party of the working masses, report to the inaugural Congress of the Workers' Party of Korea. And we'll get to that later, I suppose. But yes, the Workers' Party of Korea was founded in 1946. And here you see Kim Il-sung saying it was because of the anti-fascist war and because of the Soviet Union. So thus, the national liberation led to the founding of the Democratic People's Republic was a product of the anti-fascist war. By this nature, the same could be said about our republic and the other socialist countries that later came. They were all products of this anti-fascist conflict of which the USSR was victorious. And now to talk about the People's Committees in Min Wiwan Hoi. So it's a very socialist sounding name called People's Committees of local government councils set up in the North which was the Soviet occupation zone and the South in the American occupation zone, which consisted of all political strata of post-Japan Korea. Uh, it should be noted Kim Il-sung was one of many uh, liberation leaders in Korea. There were others. There were many others, and they were very famous at the time. Maybe some were more conservative, some were religious, some were just nationalists. Kim Il-sung was just one of many. And so communists, nationalists, conservatives, religious groups, and others participated in the People's Committees. And the Workers' Party of Korea was formed in 1946, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was formed on September 9th, 1948. And what happened was the Soviet forces left their occupation zone. They left, but the United States stayed. And the military government suppressed the People's Committees. And it was further than just suppressing. So you, the United States imposed military law. Martial law was declared in South Korea. And a man named Singman Ri uh, was imported from the United States. He was a, a pastor who went to schools. I think he went to Harvard. You know, he spoke English. And I think if he was born in Korea, I don't even know. But he basically spent 40 to 50 years of his life in the United States. So this is a, a man who speaks English and is a Christian and who went to elite United States schools. And he was shipped into Korea to become the leader. And he assassinated all his political opponents. So there were many... Uh, people was mentioned in the South, not just communists, and he killed them all. Uh, there was this other famous leader. Unfortunately, I didn't put his name in here because I thought it would be too many words. Perhaps later we'll touch at it at the second class. But there was another famous leader that he killed. But he also set up concentration camps called rehabilitation camps, which killed over 200,000 people from 1948 to 1954. And then, yeah, coup d'etat. Thank you, Ed. And the government Korea was different from the North because in the North, they got rid of the Japanese colonial government. But in the South, the Manchukuo infrastructure was left in place. Most notoriously, Park Chung-hee, he was an officer in the Manchukuo Imperial Army. He was actually the famous dictator who took power in 1961. He led South Korea for most of the 20th century, and it was his daughter that led South Korea in recent times. So the August 1946 uprising was called the Daegu incident by the South Korean government. This was a general strike by workers. It was led by communists. I think, unfortunately, we're not going too deep into it, but it, it had to do with transportation and other things in general industries. And the United States responded by declaring martial law. And then the most famous is the Jeju uprising in 1948. Uh, people were protesting against the United States and United Nations military expansion. They're trying to put military base on Jeju Island. And the response of the government, the United States military, was just, just to kill everybody who lived on Jeju Island. 
and then now we're gonna we're talking the lead up to the war, which is really a a, a hazy subject in the United States because we don't even talk about this war. We especially don't talk about the years leading up to it. So there were skirmishes going on on the 38th parallel. It was not like a peaceful place. There was fighting going on, just like Japan and the Soviet Union. Well, the two Koreas were fighting because the South Korean side, uh, they were the Manchukuo Imperial Army. And so they were fighting the communists on the orders of the United States. And the leader was for a unit he led. This is in the Kwantung Army. Remember the one the Soviet Union defeated, but this guy was an officer in that army. And he led a unit called the Kim Il-sung Activities Unit. And then after Chan was defeated, the United States offered leading the South Korean military forces on the 30th parallel. The history taught Americans is that North Korean forces attacked South Korea in 1950 and almost overran that new nation until the U.S. military came to the rescue. This is true, but does not explain that the United States government wanted a war. Major American industries had suffered with the loss of military business after the end of World War II, while wealthy Americans sought an excuse to expel the communists from China to recover their businesses. These groups conspired with the administration of President Harry Truman to lure North Korea to attack. American President Franklin D. Roosevelt assumed that China, under Chiang Kai-shek's leadership, would become a great allied power. After World War II ended, a Chinese civil war resumed, and by 1949, the communists had defeated the American-backed forces led by Chiang. See the short video link below for details who lost China, became a big political topic in the United States, and President Harry Truman was criticized by those who had demanded direct American military intervention. Corporate America lost billions of dollars invested in China, while the United States lost its key ally in Asia. U.S. military spending plummeted after World War II, and easy profits from government contracts disappeared. The communist threat was used to create and promote a U.S. national security document called the, quote, United States Objectives and Programs for National Security, known as NSC-68. This strategy called for tripling American military spending to contain communism, but had little support in Congress with war debts to repay. The Soviet Union had invaded Japanese-occupied Manchuria at the end of World War II, and pushed into northern Korea. The United States agreed to a joint occupation of the Japanese colony of Korea with the 38th parallel designated as a temporary boundary. The Soviets supported popular Korean guerrilla leader Kim Il-sung 
who formed a government in the north. He was a prominent leader of the resistance to Japanese occupation for two decades. Major industries owned by the Japanese were nationalized and Japanese collaborators purged from official positions. This led to protests by wealthy Koreans who lost property and jobs. An American occupation force composed of 45,000 men arrived in September 1945 to occupy South Korea. Army Lieutenant General John Hodge was a good combat leader but had no experience in civil administration. He disliked Koreans since many were deployed to support the Japanese army during the war. Hodges issued an order to his men to, quote, treat the Koreans as enemies and allowed Koreans who served with the Japanese colonial government, army, and police force to remain on duty. Thousands of Koreans who resisted the Japanese occupation lived in the South and formed people's committees to run cities and towns before the Americans arrived. These were deemed communist by General Hodges and smashed by his police. The Americans flew Sigmund Rhee from Washington, D.C. and anointed him as South Korea's leader, even though he had not lived in Korea for 40 years. He was a wealthy Christian, having earned a Ph.D. from Princeton, and was married to an American. South Koreans saw no change as the Japanese departed and were replaced by American rulers with the same colonial government and police force. A rebellion began as guerrillas took control of most towns and demanded land redistribution, a purge of Japanese collaborators from official positions, and a unified Korea. Unions organized strikes that led to economic turmoil. General Hodges was under pressure to send American troops home and hurried to create a South Korean army to help maintain order. By 1948, it comprised of six divisions led by officers who had served in the Japanese Imperial Army. The Rhee regime, with the support of the U.S. military, began a violent campaign of repression. By 1949, over 100,000 people had been killed and 100,000 political opponents imprisoned. Mass executions were common. Koreans in the North were angry about these events and the American effort to retain South Korea as a colony. Kim Il-sung deployed military forces to the border. To okay, perfect. Well, we can do a discussion and then we can watch the final part of the video. Yeah, um, before um, we got to the um, questions and comments, I just wanted to read um, a proclamation by uh, Douglas MacArthur. So Douglas MacArthur, he was the general of the army. Um, he was the uh, main military leader of the U.S. Army in um, the, the Asian uh, theater. And after the war, you know, you'll notice September 7th, 1945, when he realized that the People's Committees were gaining a lot of power in uh, the South, he instituted a military uh, dictatorship. And this was uh, his proclamation to the people of Korea as commander in chief United States Army Forces Pacific, I do hereby proclaim as follows. By the terms of the instrument of surrender signed by command and in behalf of the Emperor of Japan and the Japanese government, and by command and in behalf of the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters, the victorious military forces of my command 
will today occupy the territory of Korea, south of 38 degrees north latitude. Having in mind the long enslavement of the people of Korea and the determination that in due course, Korea shall become free and independent, the Korean people are assured that the purpose of the occupation is to enforce the instrument of surrender and to protect them in their personal and religious rights. In giving effects to these purposes, your active aid and compliance are required. By virtue of the authority vested in me as Commander-in-Chief, United States Army Forces Pacific, I hereby establish military control over Korea, south of 38 degrees north latitude, and the inhabitants thereof, and announce the following conditions of the occupation. Article 1. All powers of government over the territory of Korea south of 38 degrees north latitude and the people thereof will be for the present exercised under my authority. Article 2. Until further orders, all governmental, public, and honorary functionaries and employees, as well as all officials and employees, paid or voluntary, of all public utilities and services, including public welfare and public health, and all other persons engaged in essential services, shall continue to perform their usual functions and duties, and shall preserve and safeguard all records and property. Article 3. All persons will obey promptly all my orders and orders issued under my authority. Acts of resistance to the occupying forces or any acts which may disturb public peace and safety will be punished severely. Article 4. Your property rights will be respected. You will pursue your normal occupations except as I shall otherwise order. Article 5. For all purposes during the military control, English will be the official language. In event of any ambiguity or diversity of interpretation or definition between any English and Korean or Japanese text, the English text shall prevail. Article 6. Further proclamations, ordinances, regulations, notices, directives, and enactments will be issued by me or under my authority and will specify what is required of you given under my hand at Yokohama, the seventh day of September, 1945, Douglas MacArthur, Commander-in-Chief, United States Army Forces Pacific. All right, thank you for that, comrade. We've got about 10 minutes left. If there's any questions or comments, you can go ahead and raise your hand if there's anything you didn't uh, understand about the class or any questions that you have. One thing I just wanted to add real quick that I think is impressive to me when it comes to the DPRK is so the Soviet Union lasted from what was it 1922 to 1991 so almost about 70 years DPRK has been around for 75 years so that goes to show you the strength of this country and you know I think that there we can learn some lessons from their survival as compared to the countries in in Europe um, that don't exist anymore, the socialist countries there. So I just wanted to point that out. Comrade from Canada, you have the floor. 
Yeah, history never stops. How would we stop the U.S. from playing these dirty games in the future, I guess? Or the West, I should say. Thank you. What do you think? How, how, how would we stop a next Korea or a next thing from this happening? All right. Yeah, we're basically witnessing this real time. One of the suggestions I've seen tossed around regarding Ukraine is to divide it Korean style. So, you know, possibly if there, uh, if a treaty is signed between the United States or the EU and Russia, then the Western portion, which as we all know is like the Galicia section of Ukraine, which is the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which it's all the, the pro-West um, Habsburg, you know, the Nazi areas, if you want to say, and then the rest where they all speak Russian will become Russia and then it'll be divided kind of like Korean parallel. Another interesting comparison to the the Ukraine conflict, if you remember the Battle of Pachambo that Kim Il-sung spoke about, one of the reasons they they decided to start fighting was because Korean was outlawed. You couldn't speak it or, or read it or, or write it. That sounds very similar um, to Ukraine, where Russian was outlawed. So I think the answer to your question is we're watching it happen real time. It's going on right now in Ukraine. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, well, as you'll see in uh, the coming years and months, uh, there's going to be a lot of protests to get the U.S. out of NATO. That is probably our first step. We need to get the United States out of NATO, which without the U.S. being in would actually mean the dissolution of NATO. No one else would keep it alive if the U.S. left. So that's the first thing that we really need to do. As for Korea, we need to get the U.S. out of Korea. Even though the Korean War, there was an armistice signed, the U.S. military still maintains a presence at the border, the 38th parallel. So we need to demand our government end the war, call for a peace treaty, and get the United States off the Korean peninsula for good. Thank you for that, comrade. Uh, what did uh, they say, the video say about uh, Governor Hodges? Like, uh, why did he didn't he like Koreans again? He said something about something Koreans during the war. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember what was said too because I remember it. Uh, yeah, something in the lines of uh, he just saw them as the enemy because the same as Japan. I'm not sure if it was a racist motivation. It's um, strange that he would appoint all these Japanese collaborators under his administration. If he didn't like Japanese or Koreans very much. Well, those people he put into place there were the ones who were brutalizing their own population. That makes any sense. Okay. So I think they were in agreement with him. Right. Thank you, comrades. Yeah, he was referencing the Koreans who worked on the administration of, uh, you know, the Japanese occupation. So a lot of the times these folks, they worked for the Japanese and then they worked for the Americans when they entered South Korea. You know, collaborators in Europe had this problem as well, too. There was many people who worked for the Nazis while they were under Nazi-occupied, you know, st uh, status in their country. And then when NATO came around, they just all applied to work for NATO. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, one thing I wanted to go ahead and add a bit of history that I know about when it comes to the Korean War that I thought would be good to bring up here is during and after the Korean War, there were a lot of people... I, I believe more from South Korea, but possibly from North Korea, too, depending on when in the conflict it was done. They were basically stolen uh, from Korea as babies and forced into American adoption programs, Korean adoptee programs. And a lot of those kids grew up basically being abused by racist, you know, American parents that 
we're trying to just integrate them into being, you know, white American Christian Koreans. And I've known some of them personally who have like, it's a lifelong struggle to even figure out who their real parents are. And that's also a reason why in Korea today, there's a bit of dislike towards those who go straight to abortion, or I mean, not abortion, uh, adoption, because adoption has had such a murky history since the Korean War. So I just felt like that was a good tidbit to add in. Yeah, I, I wanted to add with, um, so the um, the Koreans that worked in the administration against their own people, they were generally the landlords and other comprador capitalists. But uh, the ideology that was prevailing at the time was one where the Korean people were made to believe they were inferior to the Japanese people. Their language was being erased. All their texts were being uh, replaced with Japanese texts. Sigmund Rhee's uh, um, ideology is called Ilmenism, which is essentially a Nazi um, ideology. It's based on the pseudoscience of genetic, or um, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, the genetic predisposition for superiority, you know? So it was exactly what the Nazis were doing. But instead of the Germans, they were pushing that the Japanese were a superior race. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. And easy profits from government contracts disappeared. American leaders showed no interest in Korea as they focused on countering communist movements in Western Europe. American troops had departed South Korea by 1948, but American military advisors remained along with the American CIA. As tensions mounted, North Korea massed troops and tanks on the border. The CIA and military intelligence reported this threat to Washington. War may have been deterred if the United States had announced that it would intervene militarily to protect South Korea if necessary, but nothing was said. The United States sent no additional military equipment to South Korea and made no promises to defend it. On January 12, 1950, Secretary of State Dean Acheson told the press that, quote, Korea was now outside the American sphere of influence. The South Korean commander of troops along the 38th parallel in 1949 was Kim Sok-won. He graduated from Japan's Imperial Army Academy in 1915 and rose to the grade of colonel by 1945. He had chased after Kim Il-sung and other Korean guerrillas in Manchuria in the 1930s. Kim Sok-won had been decorated by Japan's Emperor Hirohito for leading campaigns against Korean guerrillas. As border fights intensified in 1949, the top U.S. commander in Korea told his superiors that South Korean military forces had started the majority of fighting along the 38th parallel. See the link below for details. The American CIA secretly encouraged these attacks. On June 25, 1950, South Korean troops attacked northward, capturing the city of Heju, a mile north of the 38th parallel. North Korean forces along the border included 70 tanks, something the Americans surely detected with their observation aircraft. Kim Il-sung knew that Rhee had little public support and gambled that the South Korean army would collapse if his army invaded. 
North Korean soldiers crossed the border on June 25th, and by June 28th, they were in Seoul, just 35 miles away. The South Korean army crumbled as most soldiers deserted. North Korean forces marched southward unopposed and could have secured all of Korea within a week. Korea would be united with little bloodshed as South Korea was freed from decades of colonial rule. This did not occur. President Harry Truman authorized General Douglas MacArthur to rush American combat forces from Japan. He did not seek a formal declaration of war from Congress by stating this was no more than a police action. Yet military spending tripled and conscription resumed. Many government officials were elated by the outbreak of the Korean War. Secretary of State Dean Acheson was a former Wall Street and DuPont Company lawyer, pictured here with Truman. He told colleagues that, quote, the Korean War came along and saved us. According to I.F. Stone's book, Hidden History of the Korean War, first published in 1952, the United States deliberately incited the North to attack that led to a three-year war that left every Korean city destroyed, seven million refugees, two million Koreans dead, and cost the lives of 36,000 American soldiers. The end of that video basically talks about what we would call today like the military industrial combat flex. That video had its own opinions. What it tried to say was that the United States permitted uh, this to happen so that we could have this huge war. And it's not really talked about, but we'll get into that in part two. The scale of the Korean War was, was quite large. Uh, I could be wrong on this. I think more Americans died in the Korean War than in World War II combined. We'll have to double check that, but I think it's true. Pretty much it set the stage of the whole Cold War. This is the same time we heard comrades earlier talked about the civil war in Greece that was going on at the same time. In Greece, they lost the communists. In Korea, the communists did win because the North was established. Uh, but the ceasefire, there is no ceasefire, actually. F officially, the United States and North Korea are still at war to this day, although there is the demilitarized zone. In modern events, there have been some speculations that the same thing's going on right now with um, Israel because they wanted to get rid of Gaza Strip. Uh, that's why the the failed intelligence of Israel knew nothing. That's not to say we don't support Palestine. We support Palestine 100%. But uh, it's just curious events in Korea. And we'll get to that in, uh, in part two. But anyways, thank you, everyone. So we finished the class. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, Listen to our streams on Spotify and chat with us on Reddit.